Chapter Fourteen of Canyons of the Colorado. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Crandall. Canyons of the Colorado by John Wesley Powell. Chapter Fourteen to Zuni. October twenty eighth. Today we leave the province of Tusayan for a journey through Navajo country. There is quite an addition to the party now, for we have a number of Indians employed as freighters. Their asses are loaded with heavy packs of the collections we have made in the various towns of Tusayan. After a while we enter a beautiful canyon coming down from the east, and by noon reach a spring, where we halt for refreshment. The poor little donkeys are thoroughly wearied, but our own animals have had a long rest, and have been well fed, and are all fresh and active. On the rocks of this canyon, picture writings are etched, and I try to get some account of them from the Indians, but fail. After lunch we start once more. It is a halcyon day, and with a companion I leave the train and push on for a view of the country. Away we gallop, my Indian companion and I, over the country toward a great plateau which we can see in the distance. The Salakai is covered with a beautiful forest. We have an exhilarating ride. When the way becomes stony and rough, we must walk our horses. My Indian, who is well mounted on a beautiful bay, is a famous rider. About his brow a kerchief is tied, and his long hair rests on his back. He has keen black eyes and a beaked nose. About his neck he wears several dozen strings of beads made of nacre-shining shells, and little tablets of turquoise are perforated and strung on sinew cord. In his ears he has silver rings, and his wrists are covered with silver bracelets. His leggings are black velvet, the material for which she has bought from some trader. His moccasins are tan-colored and decorated with silver ornaments, and the trappings of his horse are decorated in like manner. He carries his rifle with as much ease as if it were a cane, and rides with wonderful dexterity. We get on with jargon and sign language pretty well. At night, after a long ride, I descend to the foot of the mesa, and near a little lake I find the camp. The donkey train has not arrived, but soon, one after another, the Indians come in with their packs, and with white men, Arivi Indians, Walpi Indians, and Navajos, a good party is assembled. October twenty-ninth, We have a long ride before us to-day, for we must reach Old Fort Defiance. I stay with the train in order to keep everything moving, for we expect to travel late in the night. On the way, no water is found but in mid-afternoon the trail leads to the brink of a canyon, and the Indians tell me there is water below, so the animals are unpacked and taken down the cliff in a winding way among the rocks, where they are supplied with water. Again we start. Night comes on, and we are still in the forest. The trail is good, yet we make slow progress, for some of the animals are weary, and we have to wait from time to time for the stragglers. About ten o'clock we descend from the plateau to the canyon beneath, and are at Old Fort Defiance and the officers at the agency give us a hearty greeting. We spend the 30th of October at the agency, and see thousands of Indians, for they are gathered to receive rations and annuities. It is a wild spectacle. Groups of Indians are gambling, there are several horse-races, and everywhere there is feasting. At night the revelry is increased, great fires are lighted, and groups of Indians are seen scattered about the plains. November 1st. After a short day's ride we camp at Rock Spring, a fountain gushes from the foot of the mesa. Then another day's ride through a land of beauty. On the left, 
there is a line of cliffs, like the Vermilion Cliffs of Utah. In the same red sandstones, and on the top of the cliff the Kaibab scenery is duplicated. A great tower on the cliff is known as Navajo Church. Early in the afternoon we are at Fort Wingate, and in civilization once more. The fort is on a beautiful site at the foot of the Zuni Plateau. And now our journey with the pack train is ended, and I bid good-bye to my Indian friends. My own pack train is to go back to Utah, while from Fort Wingate I expect to go to Santa Fe in an ambulance. But the region about is of interest for its wonderful geologic structure, and for the many ruins of ancient pueblos found in the neighborhood. On the 2nd of November, Captain Johnson, an artillery officer, takes me for a ride among the ruins. Many of these ancient structures are found, but those which are of the most interest are the round towers. Nothing remains of these but the bare walls. They average from eighteen to twenty feet in diameter, and are usually two or three stories high. Probably they were built as places of worship. Above Fort Wingate there is a great plateau. Below there stretches a vast desert plain with mesas and buttes. The ruins are at the foot of the plateau where the streams come down from the pine-clad heights. On the 3rd of November, with a party of officers, I visit Zuni in an ambulance. The journey is forty miles along the foot of the plateau, half the way, and then we turn into the desert valley, in the midst of which runs the Zuni River, sometimes in canyons cut in black lava. Zuni is a town much like those already visited, except that it is a little larger. Nothing can be more repulsive than the appearance of the streets irregular, crowded, and filthy, in which dogs, asses, and Indians are mingled in confusion. In the distance Toyalone is seen, a great butte on which an extensive ruin is found. The more ancient home of these people, the Zuni itself appears to be hundreds of years old. The people speak a language radically different from that of Tusayan, and no other tribe in the United States has a tongue related to it. In the midst of the town there is an old Spanish church, partly in ruins, but it is still graced with the wooden image of a saint, gaily colored, and the old tongueless bell remains, for it was sounded with a stone hammer held in the hand of the bellman. The marks of his blows are deeply indented on the metal. Alvar Nunez, Cabeza de Vaca, was the first white man to see Zuni, when he wandered in that long journey from Florida, around by the headwaters of the Arkansas, through what is now New Mexico and Arizona, southward to the city of Mexico. He had with him a Barbary negro, who was killed by the Zuni, and his burial place is still pointed out. Among the Zuni, as among the tribes of Tusayan, the form of government which prevails throughout the North American tribes is well illustrated. Kinship is the tie by which the members of the tribe are bound together, as a common body of people. Each tribe is divided into a series of clans, and a clan is a group of people that reckon kinship through the family line. The children, therefore, belong to the clan of the mother. Marriage is always without the clan. The husband and father must belong to a different clan from the mother and children, and the children belong to their mother, and are governed by her brothers, or by her mother's brothers, if they be still living. The husband is but the guest of the wife, and the clan, and has no other authority in the family than that acquired by personal character. If he is an able and wise man, his advice may be taken, but each clan is very jealous of its rights and the members do not submit to dictation from the guest-husband. The woman is not the ruler of the clan. The ruler is the patriarch or elder man, or, if he is not a man of ability, a younger and more able man is chosen, who by legal fiction is recognized as the elder. 
Over the officers of the clan are the officers of the tribe, a chief with assistant chiefs. The organization by tribal governors varies from tribe to tribe. Sometimes the chieftaincy is hereditary in a particular clan, but more often the chieftaincy is elective. There is very little personal property among the tribal people, such property being confined to clothing, ornaments, and a few inconsiderable articles. The ownership of the great bulk of the property inheres with the clan, such as their houses, their patches of land, the food raised from the soil, and the game caught in the chase. Sometimes the clans are grouped, two or more constituting a fratry, and there are other officers or chiefs standing between the clan and tribal authority. Again, tribes are sometimes organized into confederacies, and a grand confederate chief recognized. In addition to the chieftaincy of confederate tribes, fratricies, and clans, there are councils. But these are not councils of legislation in the ordinary sense. The councils are clans whose decisions become a precedent. Tribal law is therefore court-made law, and such customary law grows out of the exigencies which daily life presents to the people. The problems as they arise are solved as best they may be, and the deliberations of the councils look not to the future but only to the present, and are invoked to settle controversy, that peace may be maintained. Of course there is no written constitution or body of laws, but there are traditional regulations which are well preserved in the idioms of oral speech, every rule of procedure or of justice being sooner or later coined into an aphorism. It has been seen that a clan is a body of kinship in the female line, but the members of the different clans are related to one another by intermarriage. Thus the first tie is by affinity, but as fathers belong to other clans than the children, the tie is also by consanguinity. Thus the entire tribe is a body of kindred, and the tribal organization is a fabric with warp of streams of blood and woof of marriage ties. When different tribes unite to form a confederacy for offensive or defensive purposes, artificial kinship is established. One tribe, perhaps, is recognized as the grandfather tribe, another is the father tribe, a third is the elder brother tribe, a fourth is the younger brother tribe, etc. In these artificial kinships, the members of one tribe address the members of another tribe by kinship terms established in the treaty. Strangers are sometimes adopted into the clan, and this gives them a status in the tribe. The adoption is usually accomplished by the woman claiming the individual as her youngest son or daughter and such adopted person has thereupon the status belonging to such a natural child, and though he be an adult, he calls himself the child born into the clan before his advent, though it be but a year old, his elder brother or his elder sister. Then often young men are advanced in the clan because of superior ability, and this is done by giving them a kinship rank higher than that belonging to their real age, so that it is not infrequently found that old men address young men as their elder brothers, and yield to their authority. The ties of the tribe are kinship, and authority inheres in superior age. But in order to adjust these rules so that the abler men may be given control, artificial kinship and artificial age are established. The civil chiefs direct the daily life of the people in their labors. To the civil organization of the tribe, as thus indicated, there is added a military organization, and war chiefs are selected. But usually these war chiefs are something more than war chiefs, for they also constitute a constabulary to preserve peace and mete out punishment, and young men from the various clans are designated as warriors, and advanced in military rank according to merit. There is thus a brotherhood of warriors and every man in this brotherhood recognizes all others of the group as being elder or younger, 
and so assumes or yields authority in all matters pertaining to war and the enforcement of criminal law. In addition to the secular government, there is always a cult government. In every tribe there are shamans, designated variously by white men as medicine men, priests, priest doctors, theurgists, etc. In many tribes, perhaps in all, the people are organized into shamanistic societies, but that these societies are invariably recognized is not certain. The shamans are always found. Among the Zuni, there are thirteen of these cult societies. The purpose of shamanistic institutions is to control the conduct of the members of the tribe in relation to mythic personages, the mysterious beings in which the savage men believe. In the mind of the savage, the world is peopled by a host of mythic beings, anthropomorphic and zoomorphic. The difference between man and brute recognized in civilization is unrecognized in savagery. All animal life is wonderful and magical to sylvan man. Wisdom, cunning, skill, and prowess are attributed to the real animals to a degree often greater than to man, and there are mythic animals as well as mythic men, monsters dwelling in the mountains and caves or hiding in the waters, who make themselves invisible as they pass over the land. Not only are there great monsters, beasts, and reptiles in their mythology, but there are wonderful insects and worms. All life is miraculous and is worshipped as divine. The heavenly bodies, the sun and moon and stars, are mythic animals, and all of the phenomena of nature are attributed to these zoic beings. For example, the Indian knows nothing of the ambient air. The wind is the breath of some beast, or it is a fanning which rises from under the wings of a mythic bird. All the phenomena of nature, the rising and setting of the sun, the waxing and waning of the moon, the shining of the stars, the coming of comets, the flash of meteors, the change of seasons, the gathering and vanishing of the clouds, the billowing of the winds, the falling of the rain, the spreading of the snow, and all other phenomena of physical nature are held to be the acts of these wonderful zoic deities. It is deemed of prime importance that such deities should be induced to act in the interest of men. Thus it is that shamanistic government is held to be of as great importance as tribal government, and the shamans are the peers of the chiefs. With some tribes the cult societies have greater powers than the clan. With other tribes clan government is the more important. But always there is a conflict of authority, and there is a perpetual war between shamanistic and civil government. The shamans and cult societies have a great variety of functions to perform. All disease and all injuries are attributed to mythic beings, or to witchcraft, and on these pathologic ideas the medicine practices of the people are based. The medicine men are sorcerers, who work wonders in discovering witchcraft and averting its effects, or discovering the disease-making animals and overcoming their power. So the shamans and the cult societies are the possessors of medicine and ceremonies designed to prevent and cure human ailments. They also have charge of the ceremonies necessary to avert disaster, and to secure success in all the affairs of life in peace and war. And they prescribe methods and observances, and furnish charms and amulets, and in every way possible control human conduct in its relation to the unknown. No small part of savage life is devoted to cult ceremonies and observances. The hunter cannot penetrate the forest without his charm. The woman cannot plant corn until a ceremony is performed for securing the blessings of some divine being. Religious festivals and ceremonies are carried on for days and weeks. A war must be submitted to the gods, and a sneeze demands a prayer. 
our arrival at Fort Wingate practically ended the exploration of the Great Valley of the Colorado. This was in 1870. In 1891 we can look back upon the completion of the survey of all that region, for it has now been carefully mapped. The geology of the country has been studied, and the tribes which inhabit it have been subjects of careful research. This work has been carried on by a large corps of men, and interesting results have accrued. End of chapter 14 Read by Michelle Crandall, Fremont, California, August 2007